we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Harvey Risch, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale, Law, Yale School of Public Health. Today, we are continuing our weekly series with various interesting and accomplished people. Our discussions have generally been on science and COVID topics, but can go wherever conversations might lead. And if listeners have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. I'm really very pleased today to introduce today's guest, Mr. Henry Hank Capel. Mr. Capel is a former federal prosecutor in Connecticut with over 30 years of experience investigating and prosecuting national security matters, domestic terrorism, violent crimes, narcotics trafficking, and white collar crime. He is author of the book, War on Hate, How to Stop Genocide, Fight Terrorism, and Defend Freedom, and he writes on Middle East geopolitics in various publications. Mr. Capel is a graduate of Brandeis and Oxford Universities and the University of Pennsylvania Law School, and has served as a teaching assistant in the government department at Harvard College, and he also lectures on prosecuting hate crimes at the University of Connecticut Law School. So, Hank, let's begin. What have you been thinking about lately? Sure, and thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here and share thoughts. So what I've been thinking about, as I'm sure you can guess from the nature of my writing and research, obviously been thinking an awful lot about what's happened between Gaza, uh, Hamas and Gaza and Israel. But I think the best way to lay out my thoughts and where I've been on these things is to go a little bit back into how I feel into this mode of research and writing. <clears throat> so I was a, uh, as you said, I was a national security prosecutor for several years. Um, the last part of my career was in Connecticut here. And I'd actually prosecuted uh, one interesting case was a bunch of white supremacists who were trafficking guns and explosives to what they thought was the Klan, but actually was a wired informant working with the FBI. Fascinating case. And one of the things that jumped out from that case for me was how much when we finally finished the investigation, did the so-called arrests and takedowns, et cetera, how these guys, especially the leader of the group, were just living 24-7 in a world of ideology, the ideology that you'd associate with the Klan of hatred toward various groups all kinds of almost quasi-religious code terms and numbers and dates that have significance, like 88, H is the eighth letter of the alphabet, so HH for Heil Hitler is 88, on and on it goes. And as I was contemplating that case, I was also like probably a lot of us in the years since 9-11 was asking that question, why do they hate us? What's going on behind these horrors? What, what's driving this? And the same thing, occurred to me to ask in response to the failure of the Oslo peace process with Israel and the Palestinians. I still remember the day with friends at a beach house in 1993 watching the signing on the White House lawn, thinking this is great, finally peace. And of course, it all blew up in a bunch of suicide bombing and Palestinian terror. So all those three things were in my mind. And what I concluded was what's being said in the public arena is just not matching up with what I seem to be observing and reading and, and finding happening, namely people saying, why is there genocide? Why is there terrorism? The two foci of, foci of my research. Ancient hatreds. But ancient hatreds doesn't cut it because most ethnic groups who are rivals, most of the time, live alongside each other with minimal intergroup violence. Might be a low level, but genocide is the very rare exception. Then people say, well, this stuff is driven by poverty and the desperation associated with it. But then it turns out 
a uh, the late uh, Alan Kruger from Princeton did some great statistical studies of terrorism, and he found <clears throat> the overwhelming majority of terrorists come from the upper half of both the income and education profile within their societies. And when you do opinion polling, which has been done extensively in South Asia and the Middle East, where some of these problems have been acute, it turns out that people of the higher income and education brackets tend to be most vocal in their support of terrorism and terrorist groups. People in the lower income and education profile, not. They're against it. They're too busy trying to get by, put bread on the table. They don't have time for this crazy politics. I have actually so another, the- another reason why that is, but I'll, I'll let you finish on, uh, on this and then I'll, I'll, I'll give you my two cents about it. Yeah, I'll be most interested, definitely. So what struck me was before all of these genocidal and terrorist wave events happening from the mid 20th century forward, one thing you always see that didn't seem to be talked about was mass indoctrination and hatred. And I've done a lot of research, and I catalog it in my book, drawing from some other excellent sources, the Palestinian Authority, as well as Hamas, um, Iran, a lot of Middle Eastern regimes. Um, same thing as Hitler before the Holocaust for years, Serbia before the Holocaust, before the genocide of the, the Bosnian Muslims, Rwanda, same thing, radio, TV, leaflets. People have to be ripped out of their cultural overlays that says, you know, I might cut a corner on the law here but I'm not a mass murderer, to be turned into mass murderers. But my whole research became, it's the incitement. There are other factors, I'd love to talk about that with you, but the central driver does appear to be, and that's validated statistically in many ways, mass hate incitement. And we weren't really dealing with this even in the wake of 9-11. So uh, this extrapolates completely to the COVID experience, as, as I'll say. But what I was thinking of before is that intellectuals are the easiest people to propagandize and it's because intellectuals live in theory land they live in mental theories of how the world works instead of everyday common sense understandings of how the world works and those mental theories are always simplistic they're attractive they're intellectually attractive because they are such simplistic and easy to understand explanations for things. Aha, this all makes sense because X causes Y, and that explains why we're not on the moon yet. You know, I I mean, it is this kind of of theory, mental theory land that proposes people who gravitate to that kind of intellectual life and the intellectual careers that are related to intellectual life to accept this kind of propaganda that is just more easy to accept plausible theories if you're predisposed to accepting them. And as we learned in COVID, fear and anxiety is a great vehicle for short-circuiting common sense and getting people who might otherwise think better to accept simplistic theories to that alleviates their anxiety levels. And and so propaganda has been the the the, the vehicle for all of this. And I think in every society, as you as you point out, and some of that propaganda is intrinsic to the belief system of the society as a whole. And some of it is exogenous government employed for practical purposes in different eras for, for different presumed presume benefits of the governments or the purveyors, the media or whoever's purveying this propaganda. But that's, I agree with you, that's been the vehicle. And one of the things that uh, Dershowitz uh, recently spoke about this in terms of how, in an article, how many deaths have occurred in Gaza. And basically, 
he was talking about not counting deaths, but addressing whether Gaza civilians are innocent or complicit in the, the, the whole process that led to the pogrom, the massacre. And he basically says, well, it's a gray zone. It's a continuum. At the bottom end, you have babies who are not indoctrinated, who obviously are not responsible for anything and, and so on. And at the top end, you have adults who swallowed the, the, the propaganda hook, line, and sinker who are rabidly and violently anti-Semitic, even if they weren't part of the people who crossed into um, Israel to, to do all the murdering, they are like-minded and would have if, if they had had another 10 minutes of free time. And so what you're seeing is, and my argument about this has been, that the whole Gaza society is an industrial manufacturing plant of terrorism, that they propagandize their children virtually from birth in their schools with the educational materials and the commercials and the 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 types of, of things that they teach them. And during recess, they send them out onto the play yard to practice with wooden rifles shooting Jews and, and so on. It, it's so fundamental to their educational establishment that people are raised thinking that the highest goal of life is to get killed to killing Jews and go to heaven. And so it's it, it's a, uh, a psychopathy to do this, to inflict this degree uh, uh, of propaganda onto a whole society. But the fact that the parents don't take their kids out of school, they don't tell them that it's wrong, they don't try to stand up for this, even try to, to sneak around the ways. If you, if, you, if you can't do it against a society, you at least try to do it quietly in your own family. They don't do that. They themselves have been propagandized to think that this is the goal for their, their, their offspring. And that makes them not innocent, but complicit combatants in the process. They're the, 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 the manufacturing company on the side. So what does it matter if you're manufacturing bullets or, or terrorists? Okay, they're, they're both doing the same job. And they're, they're both the, just as responsible for committing the, the acts of war crimes. So it's very difficult to say, as Dershowitz says, that it's a continuum. And at what level do you say which is innocent, which is not? Who who is responsible for this? You know, who should or shouldn't be punished, and and what kinds of punishments are appropriate? And I don't have a good answer to that, other than I can tell the extremes, and I can you know agree with the the common sense about the extremes, but I don't know about the middle. Right, and there's. There's a lot in there in what you said, all of which I agree with. And what's fascinating is you're saying a lot of things that have been very much a part of my research and public speaking and op-ed writing that very few people, even presumably educated folks who follow them the least, um, folks in my congregation and places like that, just aren't aware. And a lot of that's because, as I know you've dealt deeply in the COVID and other aspects, the media prints what it wants to print, not necessarily what's prominent news at times. And... What you said about the social society of producing terrorists is exactly right. In a recent op-ed, I said that the both under the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and in Gaza, the former is much less well-known. It's mistakenly seen as a very moderate alternative when it's not. Um, those form the world's great, most efficacious mass production system for the generation of terrorists for, because of precisely what you say. Even in preschools, and I cite this, there's a great, several books that have written about this. One of the best ones is uh, 
uh, into the mind of the suicide bomber by a couple of journalists who spent a lot of time in Gaza and Jerusalem during the so-called Second Intifada about 20 years ago. Even in preschools, they teach the kids, you know, who stole your land, who killed your ancestors, the Jews, the Jews, etc. When a suicide bomber successfully carries out a mission, <clears throat> there are cards printed up the way we as kids used to exchange baseball cards of our sort of athletic heroes. Only these cards are cards of suicide bombers uh, with glorification on the cards. They print them up in the thousands, distribute them to children. They then make them poster size and hang them in the stores and bodegas and public spaces across the Palestinian territories. This has become a surrogate religion. Um, and it's funny because it harkens back to the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, Hassan al-Banna, from 19, the late 1920s when he founded the Muslim Brotherhood. 1938, he wrote an essay called Industry of Death. And the essay called upon Middle Eastern folks in the Islamic faith to create an industry of death. We need to show them that we love death more than life. We will do this to get what we want. They will be terrified of us, etc. And unfortunately, the Palestinian Authority, as well as Hamas, have both imbibed this outlook, which we can go into more in a little bit. But you're absolutely right. And so it does make the culpability question a bit a bit complicated. And I don't like saying things are complicated when really bad things are happening because it becomes a dodge for accountability and responsibility. But I get it. These people are so indoctrinated. And not only that, but one thing I got into somewhat deeply in the book was how much even before Hamas, when the PLO was the Palestinian national movement from like the 1960s forward, and even before that, the leaders of the Palestinian national movement, which really emerged in the late 1920s and the 1930s, they torture and kill and threaten anyone among their ranks who says, you know something, that Jewish neighbor of mine, good guy, why don't we do some work with them? You know, maybe we can cut a deal. We'll have some land, they'll have some land. You do that, you are killed, you are tortured and publicly shamed, etc. And that's not just true from the 1930s. It was especially prominent during the so-called Arab Revolt of 1936 through 39, when basically moderate Palestinians were effectively wiped out by the Palestinian leadership, while the Jews are trying to say, look, we can cut a deal here. We can both make this work. The same thing happened even under the successor folks, Arafat Mahmoud Abbas. In 2017, there was a judicial decision by about 50-plus Palestinian folks who sued in an Israeli court because they felt they could get justice there against what the Palestinian Authority had done to them. Because they were the kind of folks who, during the Second Intifada, so-called, saw that a suicide bomber was being planned to take out a bus of innocent Israeli civilians. And he would reach out to the Israeli folks and say, get some protection there. They're going to blow up that bus, you know, saving 20, 30, 40 lives. It would be tortured, sent to prison. Horrific tortures, which are cataloged in the court decision. Um, the Israeli court awarded damages in a large amount. You cannot be a peace-oriented person under Palestinian rule, whether it's Hamas or the Palestinian Authority, without suffering severe consequences. So that does make the issue kind of foggy in terms of culpability, but it also shows you how horrifically incapable of peace any of these Palestinian leadership organizations are. And they need to be pretty much gotten rid of in some way in order for there to be a dialogue that could allow for peace to emerge, which cannot with any of the Palestinian leadership today. And I don't mean to go on too long here, but what you said about intellectuals being more vulnerable to propaganda really hits home with me. In fact, my next book that I'm starting to work on and a lot of research for is about it's in the line of those past books we've seen. I cannot pronounce the French Trezon de Clerics, the Treason of the Intellectuals, and others from the 20th century. And 
that's going to try to explain almost in a sort of economic incentive, Thomas Sowellian fashion, why it is that intellectuals are often the ones to first dive deep into these horrific destructive ideologies versus less intellectual folks are like, that's ridiculous. Why would you believe that? Um, there's a, I don't know his exact profession on the Harvard faculty. I think he may be a uh, evolutionary biologist, sash psychologist, and I'm forgetting his name. It's on a shelf back there across the room. But it's a great book he wrote showing, and I don't even know how he got the source samples from different populations to do this, that the brain structure, the hardwired brain structure of pre-modern people and very modern people in advanced industrial wealthy democracies are different. And there are certain aspects of the brain that focuses on abstract thinking and pure theory, larger development, and we moderns brains than in folks who live in a pre-modern agriculture society. And just what you said, the allure and the seduction of theory, because it's all-encompassing. It's the great solution. It kind of puts the corners between all the messy, difficult, reality-based things you have to do to solve a social problem. you know. And suddenly, you're the hero with just a few theories. So it's a real problematic issue with our intellectual classes, 100% agree. Well, it's interesting. You know, Bonhoeffer said this during World War II, why the German intellectuals were the ones who created the Nazi establishment and government and all of that. He couldn't understand it because him, for him, Germany was the exalted culture, exalted intellect, exalted arts, and, and so on. And both things were true, and he couldn't re reconcile it and lost his life over speaking out about that. Um, so uh, it, it's a very difficult problem. Well, we're actually, we're getting to a commercial break, so why don't we take a pause here, and we'll be back shortly. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. The Wellness Company's chief medical board designed every supplement and medical protocol with your health in mind. From groundbreaking supplements like the Spike Support Formula to unique care like freedom from Big Pharma. Join a healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interest of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be with a company that shares your values. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix RX. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Risch with Mr. Hank Capel. So we were just talking about the toxic allure of intellectuality um, and for simplistic thinking about 
life and, and reality. The other thing I was going to say is Ashley Fernandez, I believe is her name, wrote an article in Tablet Magazine a year or two ago on why Nazi doctors were the doctors in Germany were the first to join the Nazi party that mo more than half of doctors in Germany had joined the Nazi party. And again, it's part of the simplistic belief system that comes when you can simplify your problems in, into a convenient solution with plausibility. And um, I've, I've been railing about plausibility uh, throughout the whole COVID pandemic because plausibility is, is just theory. It has, it has no relationship to science until you've actually done the scientific research to establish or, or, or you know, the, 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 the validity or reject the validity of, of theories. And none of that ever happened during COVID, that the whole COVID experience was one of pan, you know, uh, uh, pandered plausible theories that were actually never true about distancing, lockdowns, the vaccines, the outpatient medications, uh, and all this stuff, you, you know, uh, uh, a pandemic of the unvaccinated, all these things that people believed because they sounded plausible and none of them were actually true. And, uh, and you know, and, and we're still living through the aftermath of that where the, the perpetrators of all of this falsehood have, have not been taken to task over it and have doubled down on it and are still pressing, for example, for vaccines that are two generations of virus out of date uh, by, you know, by the time they've come out and the American public isn't buying it because they've only had 7% uptake on the most recent one. And if it hits 10%, I'll be surprised because by the time winter rolls around and it's, you know, when we actually have some kind of indoor infectious respiratory disease, it'll be three or four generations too late and the vaccines will be counterproductive, if anything. So uh, I don't know how to solve this problem in our society as a whole, because the people who have interests in manipulating the society for their own goals have the access to these tools of the society, the media, the, the, the gigantic amounts of money in pharma, the control of the government, the control of government PACs, the control government representatives, the whole thing is, is all locked into one side of a, of a system that they more or less have control. Yeah, and it's very interesting. And my wife and I, as a physician, have followed your work and your colleagues who've been speaking out, often at great personal cost, for which we, we greatly salute you all on these issues. And one of the interesting patterns that I, as a non-medical person, see in all this and from the discourse is there seemed to have been a reflexive reaction by those leading the decision-making vis-a-vis COVID uh, responses with centralized power and control. You know, you got to mask up, you got to be locked down, um, we'll line you up, you'll get the vax this time, et cetera. Um, if you don't get the vax, you know, we're going to boot you out of, sorry, you can't be an Air Force pilot anymore, you can't be this, you can't be that. Um, even if you're in situations where your levels of contact with us is quite limited to begin with. Um, and so it's very disturbing that you see a, almost like a bias toward the centralized control-oriented solution as opposed to, well, it turns out, as I know you've and others researched and in depth, hydroxychloroquine and zinc, um, ivermectin and various combinations turn out to be available things, less risk of toxicity than these very powerful and relatively new um, mRNA vaccines. 
and that stuff was suppressed and shut down. And those are almost like the analogous to the small market solution. These are things available, they're off the shelf. You can do it in your own with your own druggist in your hometown. You don't have to do a massive plan. So I think what you see there in terms of what you're talking about is a bias toward control and power. And there's a philosopher, I don't know if he's still with us, named Robert Nozick at Harvard, who uh, was a libertarian philosopher in the Harvard faculty. And he wrote a book called Anarchy, State, and Utopia about these issues of freedom versus control, et cetera. But he once wrote a much shorter article that I found fascinating, and I plan to quote in my next book, which is, um, the people who tend to become the decision makers in advanced industrial societies tend to be filtered through several gateways into higher and higher levels of intellectual competition, et cetera. And he says, they tend to be the folks who from very early on were told in first grade, you're the smart one. You get the gold star. You can do this. You, you are brilliant. Someday you're going to go solve all these problems. You'll cure the common cold. You'll end this social problem. And there becomes almost an ego bias toward, I'm smart enough. I've worked hard enough. I can figure it all out. Everybody just kind of shut up and listen to me. And there was a little bit of that bias in the way our intellectual class formation operates in America. And we've all seen it. I'm sure you've run into this, people. And I'm not saying everybody's like that. There are lots of great, wonderful, humble folks at the highest echelons of the power structure, et cetera. But there's a lot of that bias towards centralization power. I know how to control things. And so, and as you point out, a lot of these decisions are able to be enforced because there is a high degree of centralization in modern society. I get it. Look, I work as a federal prosecutor. You need robust, capable, well-staffed federal agencies to do certain things to keep the safety, make sure people don't wind up in the gutter and, and, and you know, without the basics of life. I get all that. But I think one part of the answer to what we're all wrestling with is there's a word for it in Catholic theology called subsidiarity. And it's basically a version of libertarianism, that the principle of political organization ought to be devolve power to the smallest, most local unit capable of effectively exercising it. And so that instead of presumably going to the intellectual grand theoretical scheme run out of a vast distant bureaucracy in Washington, more stuff could be devolved to localities where there's a chance to discourse, interact, regular folks are going to say, hey, I see what you're doing, but maybe you're missing something here. Can we talk about it? A little more localism, a little more devolution of power, definitely part of the answer, I think. And um, Well, that never happened in COVID. It was all puppetry from the top down to the lowest right. level. That's right. And it's interesting because what you said earlier about the Nazi doctors, one of the stats that I sometimes cite in my talks on this stuff is and the Wansi conference, I'm sure you're familiar with, was yes. the final planning conference for the final solution. I think it was in January 1942, just outside Berlin, in the lakeside town of Wansi, the 15 Third Reich leaders who met there, 10 of them were either PhDs or Juris doctors, you know, the intellectuals. And this is a real problem. And what you hit on the issue of so the seductions of theory, the other problem with careers that are immersed in theory, and I'm as potentially vulnerable as anybody else. I'm not putting myself above folks. Well, I, me too. I use theories in my science all the time. Right. Yes. And my book is, invokes a lot of theories. I try to do a lot of evidence gathering to hopefully support it. Um, it's probably more like a legal brief than a scientific experiment, but it does rely on a lot of data. Um, but people who function in theory tend to also in modern America and modern industrial countries not have a lot of personal skin in the game, right? There's a guy named Nicholas Nassim Taleb. You might have run across him. Yes. He's a former investments guy. And he has a book called Skin in the Game. It's great. And uh, 
he talks about how you know, in an earlier pre-modern phase, the baker, the butcher, the uh, person who performed basic medical stuff, you knew right away if what you were doing was helping or hurting people, was working or not working. The informational feedback loop was intimate and fast of success or failure. Now you get people in think tanks, in university faculties, pontificating about this is how we should do this thing, which they themselves aren't personally doing. And even if they were the decision maker high in the bureaucracy, are they really in touch with how it's playing it on the ground? Perfect example, fund the police. There, that'll bring us justice. It'll end racial disparities in policing and prosecution. And what they've really done is they have launched the havoc of violent crime and disorder on the most vulnerable communities and most vulnerable people in America. Yes, I get passionate about this because I spent 31 years trying to do my little part to not get people hurt by violent criminals. And the fact that people say this from on high in the watchtower in the gated neighborhood, this is a deep problem of our intellectual class and society. So I agree with you very much. So I've been saying that for COVID. You know, in COVID, we had doctors out in the field treating patients, prescribing hydroxychloroquine, zinc, uh, antibiotics, uh, other medications, you know, mostly supplements and so on. And was working phenomenally well in keeping people out of the hospital and keeping them from dying. And then you have the university doctors working as, as spokespeople for pharma, getting paid on pharma grants, you know, doing pharma randomized trials and all this stuff, who are pontificating about that these, these medications didn't work, supposedly didn't work. And this came to the head when Ashish Jha was, um, spoke at, at a Senate meeting that I was there in person. He spoke by Zoom. And at this this meeting, Senator Johnson asked him, well, Professor Dr. Jha, have you ever treated a COVID patient? And he was taken aback and basically said, no, I haven't. And then he got, then Jha was so incensed at this, he, he wrote an article for New York Times saying snake oil salesman of the Senate, you know, without naming names, but obviously we know who he was referring to, that um, that he who had never treated a COVID patient was saying without evidence that these drugs didn't work when in fact all the people who use them day in, day out in treating hundreds of thousands of patients knew that they worked and well. Right, right. And there again, you got a perfect example of a no skin in the game person uh, sanctioned by um, powerful people as an expert who hasn't been in the town and dirty. And I think that's a real issue uh, in modern society. I don't know the answer. I haven't thought deeply about it, but it clearly sounds from what you're describing that there needs to be a greater um, break between the large and again, pharmaceutical companies. I'm sure there's a lot of things which I myself and others have benefited from. I'm not here to just bash pharmaceutical companies per se, but the influence they wield is disproportionate to the decision-making efficacy. And they have to be ways to have that be different, whether it be you got to disclose everything, people making the decisions should not be now or for some years on that payroll, perhaps. You know, I when I was a prosecutor, EOJ, if you had a, a, a target of an investigation, whether personal or business, in which you had any personal connection or a uh, economic institution target, when you had as much as 12,000 or, or, or more stock in it or whatever, you had to get out of that case. We had strict boundaries, um, strict guardrails set up to avoid potential corruption of bias and interest. And 
I'm just not educated enough in the medical research field to say how that should happen. But it sounds like there was a lot of people with a deep stake and saying, this is the way it should go, having power over those who should have been neutral arbiters. And that lack of neutrality is just... Well, there's a huge amount of conflicts of interest. The, the conflicts of interest on regulatory panels and FDA is legendary. Um, Fauci panels where he larded the, the panels with people who had pharma interests. I think uh, in thinking about this, I've come to the conclusion that there may be a larger economic problem that used to be in the 1930s, we had antitrust legislation to block the um, scale of money available to corrupt the economic landscape and convert competitive capitalism to crony capitalism. Right. And what I think the problem is now is that we have a population size that's increasing at a at a certain rate and the institutions of the society that are increasing, but at a much slower rate. And what that does is that the population scale creates markets for products that are growing exponentially in terms of the population size, but the regulatory establishment uh, is not growing at that same rate because the regulatory establishment goes on the numbers of new drugs, for example, that are produced, which is much more of a linear scale than an exponential one. And so what happens is these companies get exponentially more wealthy and because of the scale of their sales rather than the scale of their regulation. And so over time, they have grown to be so large that they're uncontrollable. There is no regulatory process that can control them other than breaking them into their individual drugs and saying, you can only have a company that makes five drugs and that's it. Sorry, you want to make a new one? You have to get rid of an old one um, or something like that. That There's just no way of of the scale factor that doesn't destroy the the, the competitive market. That's a very difficult problem. And this goes back to under Woodrow Wilson and Teddy Roosevelt when they first built some of the federal bureaucratic regulatory agencies, like the Interstate Commerce Commission to regulate railroads. You know, this is following the age of the great, the steel titans, the railroad titans, shipping, et cetera. And a lot of political science folks write about regulatory capture, that pretty soon the the bureaucratic regulatory agency becomes more of an advocate and spokesperson for the regulated industry rather than the overseer. You know, it's kind of like happens in the State Department too. A lot, it's said that a lot of ambassadors will go abroad, supposedly representing America's good interests. And instead, you know, they make they have to make relationships with people in the country overseas and they become very, it's like a Stockholm syndrome. You know, they advocate for the country overseas against America. And these things happen in all human organizations. Um, but it sounds like what you're saying is you either have to, or maybe a little both, up the scale and resources of the regulatory side or reduce the scale of the companies being regulated. Um, well, so for example, to, to succeed with a, a new drug, it costs about a billion dollars of research because a hundred drugs fail for every one that succeeds. But you think, well, that's that's a lot of cost, but it turns out that the company spent two billion in marketing because they completely corrupt the medical landscape by paying for all of these, these doctors and universities all over the world to be parts of their pay process. So they, they co-opt them for giving talks on drugs and, and for advocating for things and being experts and all these kinds of roles that the $2 billion and the, and the media that they put all these ads in, in lay media and the lay media then become dependent on that ad revenue. And so they can't 
alter, you know, and they can't go out of the bounds of, of what the pharma would allow them to say about other things, not just pharma things. And, and medical media, they pay for ads in medical journals, which the, the, the medical journals become dependent on to support the, the salaries of their editors and, and things like that. And so all of this is a, a massive corruption scheme of the, this $2 billion. They, they make 25 or 30 billion they put four or five billion in escrow for the lawsuits, and, and their their net is twenty. And they and they you know after seven years or whatever they're happy with that, and they go on to the next one. So, uh, you know, we are the suckers, and the they manage to to get to Congress. Part of that two billion dollars goes to PACs in Congress that controls almost all uh, members of Congress except for a very few. Right, right. No, and it sounds like that. First of all. If you haven't read it already, this sounds like a really worthy book, right? Um, because part of this battle, I, I could be wrong, but I put my money on for the rest of my post-DOJ career. I'm going to keep writing and speaking about how we're missing the boat on mass atrocities and what drives it. Um, because the more we miss it, the more some really bad things happen. And, you know, lately, in the wake of the Hamas thing, there have been groups and organizations saying, hey, can you come talk about this? And again, you know, I'm just one guy in a large sea of idea transmission and so forth, but it's it, it's it's painful because I feel like I've been saying this, trying to say this for 12 years. Yeah. Saying, Look, and I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but I was, was fired by the Department of Justice for publishing a few op-eds with those core analytical points that I introduced when we first started talking tonight uh -huh. um, about, basically, um, I was a counterterrorism prosecutor and I was seeing <clears throat> that we keep sending about Four to five hundred million a year to the Palestinian Authority, which, and again, I got no beef against the Palestinian people. As far as I'm concerned, they're children of God, like everybody else. They deserve dignity, respect, and a decent life. My beef is with their leaders, who I think have betrayed them terribly by their radicalism and their violence. Well, but they elected them, and they would they would reelect them now. A surveys Arabic language surveys done there, you know. Yes. Know that. Um, yes. If we could take a break for again, sure. we have to get a go to commercial break. So we'll do that, and we'll be right back. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. AmericaOutloud.news, delivering a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. Join us in the fight for liberty and justice for all. America Out Loud Talk Radio. I'm so confused. I don't know what to do. I'm afraid of going to the hospital. My doctor tells me nutrition doesn't work. Trust is earned. We are the Energetic Health Institute, and we want to earn your trust. Natural medicine, holistic nutrition, detoxification, fasting, cellular healing, and so much more. Remember, the best way to be free is to be healthy. So stop being a patient and start being a student at energetichealthinstitute.org. The Natural Colon Cleanse. It's the ultimate digestive tune-up with Oxy Powder. It's crafted to alleviate the discomfort of gas, bloating, and occasional constipation. There's a reason why Oxy Powder is our number one seller. It worked. Go to AmericaOutloud.shop 
and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Rich with Mr. Hank Capel. So we were just talking about how you ended your tenure with the DOJ <laughs> and funding of people for, for their existence for altruistic reasons that in the reality, we know full well that 99% of that doesn't actually go to the people. It goes to their the corrupted leaders that even though those people put into power, it wasn't for the intention of stealing all their money. Right. That's right. And th unfortunately, there's not really been any decent choices when there has been an occasional Palestinian election. Um, and that's actually one of my pieces that should come out in a couple of weeks. It's just a long form uh, deep dive is that we're already seeing pressure from the national administration that say you cannot occupy Gaza as soon as you finish your military stuff and you will put the Palestinian Authority back in charge in Gaza. And my article says outright that would be a catastrophic error and a very predictable one. Because before what happened in, in Gaza, in southern Israel, on October 7th, I had been writing and gathering some statistics and publishing them. The rate of terror attacks in Israel from the West Bank under the, under the allegedly moderate Palestinian Authority the, they had already started to exceed 3,000 attacks or attempted attacks for the year. There's always more than 1,000, 1,500 that are really spiking all spring and summer. And a larger number of Israelis have been murdered by August than in, of 2023 than all of 22. You remember the horrible murder of Rabbi Leo D's family as they're just driving on a family after Sunday drive in the afternoon, et cetera. There's so much of this going on. And the Palestinian Authority, as I've discussed in this article in prior publications, has the exact same goals of Hamas. It's not understood. They play a different kind of diplomatic game. They cozy up to the West. They talk about an eventual peace so they can keep the aid flow going from Europe, from Canada, from America. But they have the exact same goals. Give you one little anecdote. There's, there's dozens of anecdotes, but one of them. 1993, September, the signing of the Oslo Accords on the White House lawn with Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat. Clinton kind of had to pull them together to do the handshake. It was talked about, as Rabin said, the peace of the brave. We're finally giving up terror, yada, yada. That very night on Jordanian television, Yasser Arafat gave a speech in Arabic, which basically said, don't think what I did on the White House lawn today was really ending this conflict. This is just phase one of what I've been talking about since 1974, the plan of phases, the phased destruction of Israel. Step one is get some land from which you can get ready to prepare the destructive blow. Phase two is then arm and prepare and strategize for the destructive blow. And then stage three is the destructive hammer coming down in Israel. Well, stage two Not and a half is lull the enemy into thinking that, that you're acquiescing. Yes, yes. And what shocks me, again, this gets into the almost the cultural perversion of our intellectual class, a cognitive perversion in a way. This stuff is all on record. There's plenty of NGOs that have documented the homicidal uh, media indoctrination of Palestinian Authority, MEMRI, Middle East Media Research Institute, Palestine Media Watch. There are others, Impact SE, which studies the schools. This stuff is a, a, a mouse click away, and it's free. And it's been written about, but people don't want to hear it. And that's why, again, I don't like to make this about me, but this anecdote is somewhat telling. 
So it's 2011. I'm working in the Justice Department. I just prosecuted this white supremacist case, among others. And there was a horrible massacre of a Jewish family in the West Bank town of Itamar, the Fogel family, by Palestinian terrorists, who, of course, dancing in the streets and handing out of candy in the streets. We've killed more Jews, all the celebrations. And I realized this is something that's got to be addressed. I'm sitting there as a counter-terror prosecutor watching America shovel hundreds of millions of dollars to one of the world's leading terrorist organizations, the Palestinian Authority. I got clearance from Department of Justice that my op-eds, which I sent them, were not a conflict of interest for me as a prosecutor. I could do it, just say this is not the view of the Justice Department. I published a few in a UK publication. Next thing I know, I'm hauled before the US attorney. It turns out that folks down at Maine Justice, without telling me, had decided it wasn't good after all what I'd written about the use of American dollars abused by the Palestinian Authority to incite mass amounts of terrorism, which includes the killing of Americans as well. And uh, I was going to be stripped of all prosecutive responsibilities. I had no idea what job I would have left. Apparently, they turned me into some high-paid paralegal doing nothing for the rest of my career. Some good people did speak up. I had just, uh, all my Middle Eastern cases were taken away from me. I was told anti-Semites, Middle Eastern people, those kind of terrorists, you can't do those anymore. It's all right. There's plenty of other work to do. I did other work. Um, but this is... It turned out that this little mope of a prosecutor up in Connecticut writing these articles had outraged some people in the Obama administration for daring to call out the Palestinian Authority for its use of our tax dollars to promote massive terrorism. This is the obstacles we all face. And I know you and your colleagues in the COVID battles have faced these kind of things, many much worse than me. I survived. I got by and I retired 10 years later. But what disturbs me about it is less what put me at risk than what this says about our leadership class and their um, incapacity to assimilate ideas that challenge their paradigms. The paradigm blindness is toxic, and we've seen it in COVID. We've seen it with terrorism. We see it with defund the police. And it's like we're knocking on the door. We got some good facts, and they're just not listening. It's very troubling. Right. I, I you know, it, it's cherry picking disease that. Yes. Uh, uh, they they are comfortable with the facts that that make what they want to say, and they ignore and push out and and demean facts that make them uncomfortable. That uh, you know that raised um, arguments against the the cases the that that they're trying to make. And I this is so rampant that I see this daily. People send me essays, and I can't even get through the first two or three sentences because I see it's already been cherry picked away from truth and you know and and just organized to confirm the the prior usually anti-semitic belief of uh, of the writer and um it's just not honest you know and um for me as a scientist what got me through covid is that i basically stood up for just the science that i understood that i read voraciously of the scientific studies i try to be complete on the studies going for any particular question, I try to synthesize it and, and make an understanding of what the evidence is saying. And I try to distill it and explain it in everyday lay English terms. That's my my public role is, is to translate science into English. And so I'm on, I know the grounds that I'm on because scientifically speaking, I can address the scientific questions that I address. And so no one has provided counter evidence to anything that I've said on scientific topics throughout the entire pandemic. It's all been smears and innuendos and just statements 
that what I've said is untrue without providing any evidence that it was untrue, because I know it's all been true. And I have all the evidence to support that. So it's kept me in a state of sanity, I guess is how I would put it, that uh, I'm not going to lie and say nature says something that isn't true when I know what the truth is. Now, in order to do that, you have to be as objective as possible. And science is subjective in evaluating evidence. Nevertheless, there's reasonable standards to try to incorporate all evidence and make a complete picture of, of a whole literature for every particular question. And, and, that, and that is a, a more a fairly objective process to do. And it's a lot easier to do it in science than it is to do it in public policy. Um, but still, there's got to be facts and there's got to be understandings of those facts. And there's got to be completeness of all the relevant facts and not the wholesale disregarding of inconvenient facts and so on in, in public policy. And this is also why I started to wonder about mid-2020 when the pushback on things that I was saying was so irrelevant that I was talking about treating outpatients and I was being told by multiple media sources that, oh, well, these drugs don't work in hospitalized patients. And I was saying, well, wait a minute, I'm not talking about hospitalized patients, I'm talking about outpatients. And they're saying the drugs don't work and they're not even qualifying them. And then the studies that they're claiming you know, bear on that are, are hospitalized patients. So I knew something systematic was afoot, that this was a campaign to do this, not because of somebody investing in science and having a different opinion of the literature, but somebody pushing the media, which was compliant for either economic or political reasons, to misrepresent the science. So that's when I knew there was something going on. Addressing where that was coming from goes back to much more profound questions as to the fact that we knew within the first year that the virus was engineered, that whether it got out was accidental or intentional, we don't know, but we do know absolutely that it was bioengineered. We know the technology, we know the genes, we have statistical proof of its of its engineering. What's in it was it was in the, the genetic sequences in the virus were in patents from Moderna three, four, five years earlier that in, in genes that are relevant for the production of the, the gain-of-function virus, the, the, the amount of evidence proving that this was bioengineered is just completely proof for beyond a shadow of a doubt. So we know that, that it was done, and we understand that six days into the pandemic, the management of the pandemic was taken over by the National Security Council, which defined the virus as a bioweapon, and the vaccines as countermeasures. So a whole different process of management and legal understandings enters into that when public health is no longer managing this on a public health medical model, but security state is managing it on a terrorism model from some supposed enemy inflicting this on us and, and how we recover in a, in a war against terrorism. Yeah. And, you know, and, and and how that came to be and why can only be inferred as a cover-up of its involvement in making the virus in the first place. And we know this happened. There's now lots of evidence of that going back to 2015-16, 2018, and in another uh, lab making gain-of-function viruses. And all this denied by Fauci, but all of it on record and publicly available. Yeah, it really is. I've had this conversation at home and the folks... It's shocking to me, given the clear evidence of the gain-of-function research, 
ostensibly at least, again, I'm talking from outside the bubble, 40,000 feet up. You know this stuff and your colleagues so much better. But that ostensibly, so that we're prepared to deal with this, if it comes around, we'll proactively create it, tinker with it, and get ready to have a response. Perhaps that was the claimed rationale. But That's another plausible theory. That's another plot that was never fleshed out, that all you have to do is tinker with the virus a little bit, and you can't make a vaccine for it. You know, that there was, and from 2015, when they made the gain of function virus until 2020 in the pandemic, there was no vaccine made. Right. And, and we got what, for whatever reason they did this research. I mean, two things really jump out at me. One is if you're going to do something that is so inherently risky and dangerous, do you want to be farming out to one of our lead geopolitical rivals in a totalitarian government that has none of the guardrails of be careful to protect your citizens because there'll be popular uprising and lawsuits? Or do you do it with what about America, France, Israel, the UK? If, we, if if there's a reason to do this research, and I don't know the answer to that, China, Russia, Ukraine, come on. That's not where you do this. But number two, where is the commission to be looking at this saying, what should we be doing if there is a problem of worse things to come down the pike? How do we deal with this safely? Nobody's dealing with this. It's shocking. Right. There was no formal presidential commission or, or congressional committee to 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 do bioethics, value judgments, constitutional principles, all this kind of stuff. Nothing. The security right. state took it over and, and they had these, you know, annual or, or biannual meetings, event 201 being the most recent in September of 2019. The CIA was at event 201. Why was the CIA at event 201? Why was it military before they know where the virus came out? Right. And I think in a more general sense, because I can't address the specifics as well on this subject matter, but in a general sense, there seems to be at least three issues, among others, of deep problems. One is what we've talked about, the financial, the skewing of proper financial incentives from conflict of interest. There ought to be people really drilling down on that. How can we still have a robust research sector that doesn't skew the important decisions that have to be made because of conflict of interest? That's question one. Number two is, and this gets into my work and my counterterrorism area, ideology. The pernicious role of ideology as opposed to, as you say, objective factual analysis, that the human mind is prone to ideology because we all want to make order out of the things we see around us. We all want to make order of what often feels like a chaotic world at various levels. And ideology provides such an all-encompassing easy answer. I, I actually think, for instance, Marxism is a permanent cognitive virus that is never going away. Every generation, 100 million people killed by Marxism in the 20th century, China, Russia. Right, but we'll get it better this time. Yeah, exactly. I saw, I said this in the podcast, I I saw one of the British Labour Party leaders in 1981 get up there, Anthony Wedgwood Ben, not a guy who was actually a proletarian, and his fine suit got up and said, it's not that Marxism has failed, it's that it's not been properly tried yet, 100 million deaths later. And it comes back. And so we have an issue with human limitations and advanced industrial societies, whether democratic or not, of ideology. And that's what I see. The reason the Justice Department went that, you know what, crazy, because I wrote those few op-eds was I was challenging a whole paradigm they had that we can make peace with the Palestinians without having to change their fundamental leadership structure and ideology. And how dare you throw you know, ink on that nice document and analysis we have. And this happens in a lot of fields. And it sounds like you are reading a tablet magazine, as am I. Um, I've been thinking a lot and chatting with folks about that iconic article um, by the publisher, um, Everything is Broken. 
you know, there's this feeling that in so many fields of important endeavor, medicine, vaccines, criminal justice, counterterrorism, economics, um, fiscal policy, that we're just riding off the rails because of distorted cognitive ideological systems that are blocking good old-fashioned empirical, just give me the facts, Joe Friday, give me the facts. And the question I'd be curious for your thoughts on this is, is there something about character formation in wealthy industrial democracies? Because obviously what you described you did is that's exactly the kind of character we want to see in folks at the cutting edge of science and public policy. You stuck with the facts, you're empirical and fearlessly speak out if others try to suppress it, which a lot of good people have done yourself included. But we have a lot of people who don't do that. And I wonder what's happening. I mean, traditionally in American history, we're the country, you don't think something's right, speak up about it. But we have so much groupthink in these advanced industrial democracies, which you've run up against, I've run up against, other folks have. There's something in the character formation process in addition to the ideology problem and the interest and conflict of interest problem, all three of those things. So I'll give you a one minute answer to the last because we only have about a minute left, which is I think that the mass production of PhDs in universities in Western societies has led to this. And the reason for that is each PhD has to be on a new topic of something that has not been addressed before. And when you run out of things to address, you start doing PhDs on your system itself and the failings of your system, and then on the, the on the failings of the methodology of dealing with the failings of your system. And eventually the PhDs become critical to the point of damaging your system in the first place. And in the in the, in the pursuit of novelty. And I think that that has been the, the most destructive factor in education. That we don't give make people graduate educated to know about the world and life and so on. We have to make them find something new to say because that establishes their credibility. And that worked in the 1780s and the 1850s, but it's it's too late for that now because of the scale of our societies. That again, PhDs have grown exponentially, but the subjects that they that they deal with have only grown sort of linearly, and and so we've outpaced that body of knowledge, and so we're being auto destructive, uh, yeah. self destructive with with how we view our societies, and I, and I think that's been damaging. And we have to say yeah. we're out of we're out of time, unfortunately. Sure. We'll have to talk about this again. So I hope everybody's enjoyed our conversation. And please, if you have questions for me, submit them at americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. Well, Hank, thank you for really interesting discussions. I love this. Thanks everybody for listening, and please come back again next week. Bye.